0: Yep, yep. No, that was me. I was literally texting you angry about Lord Kitchener, and you sent me
1: a picture back. It was kind of terrifying. Yeah, that was weird. (laughs) Like, literally, I was getting texts from you about this guy, and then I look up from my phone laughing, and there he is on the wall. (laughs) You can't escape, Aaron. Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George.
0: Good morning.
1: Hmm, how pleasant. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, what are we doing today? Well, Aaron,
0: we are continuing our long and connected series on why the British Empire is terrible. Which, honestly, has sort of been going on as long as I've been on the show.
1: And, yeah, that doesn't even really narrow it down, really.
0: (laughs) Okay, fair point. Um, What I mean by that is that we are finally finishing up Danae's rates
1: and the Boer Wars at last. Heaven be praised. Amen. (laughs) I will say it has been a fun series, but I am looking forward to getting to something new in the coming weeks because my research bug has been... I don't know, itching? I've been wanting to research something else that was also pertinent to what we're seeing going on today, but...
0: Well, as long as that something's actually on the list this time...
1: <laughs> hey, I went full-on attack with the MK Ultra shit because I was mad at the government, okay. <laughs> okay?
0: Okay, okay, I'll let it pass this time.
1: All right, well, let's get to it. <laughs> Empire, two little republics, the limitless scope of human depravity, and a weird language that is to Dutch what Dutch is to English. Join us as we finish the tale of the Second Boer War and try to figure out why the British are so evil.
0: So, Aaron, if you could receive relationship advice from one historical figure... But only while you were taking them out to a fast food restaurant, who would you choose to give you advice, and where would you take them to eat?
1: Benjamin Franklin, I'd take him to Chick-fil-A.
0: That was... <laughs> I've got to admit, based on a precedent, I wasn't expecting that fast of an answer. I was expecting some of the, the, usu- <clears throat> the usual hemming and hawing, and uh,
1: I didn't read Why the question. Why don't you answer and... it first? Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's because my questions are usually simple and stupid and yours usually have multiple elements and that's too much for my little brain to handle. I'm not as smart as you, you know.
0: Well, could we uh, could we trouble you for maybe a reason why, Benjamin Franklin?
1: Um, Because I feel like he would... I mean, BuzzFeed told me he had like 45 girlfriends and boyfriends um, and that he was like a total chad in bed or something like that. But then BuzzFeed later told me that he had one testicle and died of like... Penis cancer or something disgusting like that. So I really don't know. I feel like he'd be kind of like the maverick type who'd say, don't worry about women, just make lightning. <laughs> and then Chick-fil-A, of course, because of the spicy chicken sandwich. And as we know, Benjamin Franklin is very quickly becoming a spicy meme uh, in, our, in our current, current year. <laughs> well, all righty then. And what about you? If you could receive relationship advice from one historical figure, but only while you were taking them out to a fast food restaurant, who would you choose? And where would you take them?
0: Well, I was also going to go for Chick-fil-A, but mostly because that's just my favorite fast food restaurant. But I was thinking probably Augustus, the, uh, the first Roman emperor, because, you know, if a man can find a way to constitutionally take over a republic and turn it into an empire without, like, breaking anything, he can probably handle a relationship and, you know, know his way around the sort of the balancing act and the tightrope and the, you know, the give and take you've got to do. So I thought he'd probably have a pretty balanced perspective, and I just really fucking love Chick-fil-A. So you take him to Chick-fil-A? Oh, yeah, no, know. Well, yeah, Chick-fil-A. We're, we're getting the four-piece chicken strip meal, the large fry... <laughs> The Chick-fil-A sauce. No, Augustus is going to be
1: awed. <laughs> Even Augustus marvels at the Lord's chicken.
0: <laughs> and of course, one of his offices is he was the high priest, the Pontifex Maximus. So like he he understands the importance of, you know, sacred rites and stuff. So he would understand about the Lord's chicken.
1: Yeah, it is a sacred rite, and uh it's it's uh yeah, I, mean, I get it. <laughs> now, if I had to pick a restaurant that wasn't Chick-fil-A, just to keep this interesting, I think it would probably be um, Jimmy John's, because they give you subs so fast you'll freak. And I feel like there's a lot of historical figures who really needed a lot of subs real fast, sort of like our podcast. <laughs> that was a pun of multiple layers right there. I don't know if you caught that. Now that completely went over my head because I was thinking about food. <laughs> I'm going to buy you Chick-fil-A when I come out there one of these days. Uh, Well, I think it's probably time, but hang on a second. What's that over there? I was so busy talking about the Lord's Chicken, I didn't even notice that thing in the corner.
0: Hmm. Well, I can't say that I really know. But if I was to make an educated guess, it looks suspiciously like a pallet of money. Did the DEA do a drug bust or something?
1: Um, if they did, they put their money in the wrong place, but... It is a pallet of money, what the hell?
0: Careful, Aaron, this could be some sort of fed trap trying to buy us. If you touch that money, you might get infected with the... Uh,
1: what's that? Sorry, I just bought some Hot Pockets on Amazon. God
0: God damn it, Aaron, calm down. Look, look, the money even has a name on it.
1: Jacob. Well, Jacob doesn't... That doesn't sound like a Fed name at all. It would be like Smith or something fake like that. We definitely have to take this money. There's, there's no getting around it. I thought
0: all Feds were named Agent.
1: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um,
0: well, you know what? I, let's just accept it for what it is. It looks like an actual real person sent us an actually useful amount of money.
1: For the podcast. For the podcast. I know, it's I find this absolutely staggering because we've had our you know, we've had donors before and we've had people give um large amounts of money before, but never this high. It's actually the largest donation we've ever got. Like should I disclose how much was sent to the show? No, let's keep the mystery. Oh, it was so much money, you guys. It was oh jeez. I can't even like I'm I have gold rims in my car right now. Um, because that's what's important in life. And uh, that's what we spend our meager cash. On. I can't even keep this up. The Patreon, we, we actually emptied the Patreon for the first time and took home like it's the first time we've done it in a while. So it was a little, it was a little bit of money, but it actually kept me from going underwater economically. <laughs> um, so that was kind of cool. But then suddenly, out of nowhere, I just get this Venmo that's like, holy shit. <laughs> Anyway, so thank you, Jacob, for funding our bullshit. Uh, you'll only get more of it by donating, so I have no idea what your endgame is. Um, but yes, we don't do this for the money, but in times like these, showing support for things you like in tangible ways is about the best thing you can do. If you can do it to cam girls, you can do it to us. Um, support what you like, everyone, because we might be deplatformed tomorrow for simply liking history. And speaking of supporting things that you like, we have a new patron, Louis, um, who expressed his support for the show um even in our shall we say uh absence temporary absence so picked up another patron which is great so thank you lewis um thank you lewis and jacob you're helping keep we talk about dead people going it actually matters quite a bit uh so yeah i don't even know know if i should keep talking about this but it is important to support what you like <laughs> yep you're um,
0: if- you're making the dead people keep talking or but i don't know i don't
1: listen to the show Whatever. <laughs> Never listens to his own show. I don't listen to the show I only only when I'm editing, and then I just rarely ever go back. So people will be like, "Hey, let's listen to an episode together." I'm like, "I don't want to listen to myself making his friends."
0: As anyone who's listened to more than one or two of our episodes knows, Aaron sometimes doesn't even listen to them while he is editing.
1: <laughs> That's true. I am a very very lazy editor when it comes to this show because most of the time we don't say anything that I want to edit out. <laughs> But we're getting to the point where if I want to keep the show (laughs) uh, platformed, we're going to have to start. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. This whole deplatforming thing is just a bunch of bullshit. Okay, so with all that out of the way, computer, please bring up Danae's rates for the last time. Affirmative, my lord. That doesn't look like Danae's rates. No, I
0: I haven't said my thing yet. (laughs) Mark this. All right, Aaron, well, I've uh, brought a different sort of photo today to get us started on the episode, so I want you to look carefully at this photo and tell me, what do
1: you see? Well, I see a lot of pink, a lot of blue, and a little bit of white, and it's a world map, and many countries are um, colored pink, and the blue is the ocean, and very few countries are colored white, and it's labeled with some names of countries that aren't even around anymore yeah
0: no it's really it's not very many countries that are white it's like what 10 or 15 total in if, the whole world if that like, if shit. that it's it's not very many and do you have a guess perhaps as to what those countries in white represent
1: uh let me see what they have in common they look like countries that were unaffected by British imperialism
0: correct in fact they are the countries that britain has never invaded
1: <laughs> and it's none of them <laughs> it's
0: like, it's, yeah it's like, it's like 10 Mong- countries mongolia.
1: yeah mongolia they didn't get to central africa though
0: no uzbekistan uzbekistan oh, yeah. Got, yeah. so yeah it's a short list um just it's a good thing to keep in mind that yeah um the british just they really just can't keep their hands to themselves
1: Hmm, at least they couldn't before. Now, <laughs> different story.
0: Ah, times change. Anyway, let's uh, let's start out here by just making sure we're up to speed on our story. Do you remember anything from last time?
1: I remember that fight on the mountain that killed a bunch of British people that nobody won because it just sucked and it was hot and there was a German who stood up and got shot. I remember that.
0: Okay, that that's a start. That's a start. You I remember.
1: Work. I oh, sorry. I also remember a uh, asymmetric warfare at the end, the loss of cities, um, and then the Boer uh, rebellion basically going mobile.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's the pertinent part. Okay. So the Boers ultimately just couldn't really match the British in conventional warfare, and it just it had ground to a halt, they were being pushed back when they tried to sort of fight the British like the British fight, the capital cities of the Boer Republics had been taken, and the Boers had been sort of pushed into the backwoods and had to come up with a new plan because they realized, as we saw all along, that they just didn't have the organization or the resources to match the British at set-piece battles, especially since the British just poured troops into this campaign eventually there were literally hundreds of thousands of british troops with the logistics of a global empire supporting them and let's face it sort of dutch farmers just really can't compete with that
1: i think you're right i mean i think early on probably before the whole thing got swinging you know it felt like they had a chance to you know fight off this encroachment but i don't know that british empire has got to have its golden diamonds oh yeah you know it does you know, you want to hear something funny I learned this week while Go just skating around the internet? I didn't realize there are two mayors of London. Did you know that? Well, yeah, there's the real one and then there's the Lord Mayor, right? Right, right. The fake one. <laughs> but I'm starting to think he's not the fake one because he runs, he runs the city of London, which is separate from London and the UK. I don't know much about that, but I, I read about that like, oh, it's the city of London. It's not the same thing. They have a Lord Mayor. And I was like looking into the history of it, and there were like dudes who served like dozens of terms as Lord Mayor of the City of London, and it's all the financial shit there. Interesting. And then one... Exactly. And so one other thing I read was that um, there used to be like like two hundred thousand people living in that spot, some some massive number. Like I I had a hard time believing it, but uh, nowadays it's like three thousand people occupy it, and they're all just bankers starting wars in other countries. <laughs> Well, that is what bankers usually do. Isn't it? Um, so, yes, please, carry on. I
0: just thought I'd share that with the audience. Well, thank you, Aaron. So, cause... yeah, in that uh, in that last bit of the conventional phase of the war that we covered last time, when the organized Boer military pretty much just fell apart, Danaes was right there in the action the whole time, as was his father and his brothers. And I want to take a minute to say we really haven't talked too much about his brothers. There were three of them, and the reason we haven't talked that much about them is because it's really, really hard to keep track of them because they are just always popping in and out of the narrative, sort of willy-nilly, as they get separated by the war and then reunited and then separated again, rinse and repeat.
1: Hmm. So sort of like uh, those like meme characters that appear in like Seinfeld or whatever, like Newman, he just shows up every now and then. That's what his brothers are like. Basically, <laughs> yeah.
0: And it's funny because Denae's actually mentions that in his memoir around this time in the story. After yet another reunion with his father and his older brother, Helmar, he
1: says, and why don't you read this quote, Aaron? Okay, I don't know what voice I'm use, but... <sighs> Our remaining two brothers were missing, but we were so continuously losing and finding each other nowadays that their absence caused us no undue anxiety, as we felt they would turn up sooner or later.
0: That's really a pretty nonchalant take on the whole thing, don't you think?
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, they'll just uh, they'll be fine. Yeah, they'll, there's they'll, only they'll, a war going on. They'll they'll find their way back eventually. It's fine. They're like cats. Just just like Newman if the post, the post never stops or it's always on time, whatever the fuck those <laughs> Sorry.
0: So yeah, it's I was thinking about this, and I guess it's important to remember that Denae's is still pretty young. Like, he's just 18 at this point. So the sort of youthful and lighthearted optimism about things is probably pretty natural, but it's still impressive in light of the whole, you know, war, destruction of your country thing that's going on.
1: Yeah, watching people die horribly. It is interesting. It's, it's It's like a different breed of human being at this time in history. They're just, people have in so many different countries and so many different cultures have put up with so much war at this point it's just been one steady just war um and it's it's interesting to still see people fueled by things like patriotism and honor when it seems like this would be like a pretty uh i don't know if you'd call it like a black-pilled kind of kind of world where it's just like everything's gonna be fighting all the time and there's never going to be any good stuff ever again like I think I'd knowing myself I'd probably not be like oh they'll turn up sooner or later I'd be like they're probably fucking dead man (laughs) yeah
0: yeah no I can confirm that's probably what you would be like yeah, 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 but yeah, there's, uh, there's actually another great example of this same sort of sentiment uh, right at the same time in the story as well. So his brother Kalmar, the older brother, was shot in the face during one of the engagements in that long Boer retreat at the end, and was blinded in one eye. And God. when when Denae's next sees him, he's got a bandage over part of his face, covering the damaged eye. And Denae's writes in his memoirs that he looked like a pirate. <laughs> That's awful! <laughs> like... You're, but, but you're, kinda... Your brother gets shot in the face and you're like, heh,
1: <laughs> looks like a pirate. <laughs> Yo ho, ahoy matey! And like, every time you do it, he just gets a little more pissed off at you. Yeah. And then he just turns to you one day, just flips around and says, Your name is Denise! Ah, <laughs> uh, what are younger brothers for? Ugh... <sighs> Right. That.
0: But yeah, it's the uh, it's the little things like this that are really interesting about the story. The sort of the juxtaposition of Danae's own sort of jolly and happy attitude with the absolutely horrific conditions he was often subjected to during the war. Mm. And I mean, we've already seen lots of examples of that in the story so far. And it certainly wasn't getting any better from here on out. Um, right. right around this time, actually, he almost got obliterated and was only saved by a coincidence. Uh, during this long retreat from the British Army, they, uh, they've they stopped briefly to you know, feed the horses and everything, and he's just chilling on an anthill reading a book when he sees that one of the nearby horses had gotten its reins tangled up in something while grazing. So, you know, he does what any self-respecting farmer would do, and he gets up and could go get the horse loose. And while he's doing that, an artillery shell hits the anthill he had been sitting on and wipes it off the face of the earth, ruining his book in the process, as he makes note of. He, want, he wanted to make sure we knew the book was ruined. What happened to the
1: ants? And they're the real victims in all this. Just, boom, your entire world gone. I don't want to be an ant in the War.
0: No one ever thinks of the ants. No one ever thinks of the ants. Yep. And there was another really terrible situation, like, within a week of that, uh, was when during the middle of a British bombardment on their position, there was an earthquake under them at the same time, which was something he'd never experienced. He'd never been in an earthquake before. And, like, I honestly can't even imagine how terrifying either of those things would be, much less both at once. Artillery shells from the sky and the earth quaking under
1: you. Oh my god. The British were making God mad. Well... That makes sense. But, yeah.
0: <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, yeah, young, young Denae's soldiers on and seems to keep up his uh, his youthful good spirits during this whole thing, which is pretty impressive, honestly.
1: I, I don't know how he did it. I mean, uh, but also, here, here's another thing. Here, here's another thing. Um, Maybe, maybe he wasn't actually there. He just said he was. I don't know. I'm just kidding. I'm just uh, kidding. Well,
0: thank thank you for your contribution, Aaron. <laughs> Anyway, as we were saying, the main Boer army had pretty much melted away and the British had taken the capitals of both the Boer republics, Blomfontein and Pretoria, and so they were, on paper, in control of nearly the entirety of the region of the Boer republics. Mm. Yes, job well done. Yes, bloody bloody brilliant. (laughs) So, in their British minds, they thought that this meant that the war was over, and so they started to... uh, organized their newly obtained territory so they you know they did the normal things they shipped off tens of thousands of captured Boers to pow camps around the empire uh, including india sri lanka and even saint helena or saint helena i'm not sure how it's pronounced but that's a little island 1200 miles off the western coast of africa it's yeah That's its nearest land, is 1,200 miles to the western coast of Africa. And they sent over 5,000 Boer prisoners to that island. To do what? To be prisoners. Uh, so these, these aren't like work camps, though. These are just camps. Uh, I mean, I don't know what, what work you do on a
1: tiny island that's 1,200 miles away from everyone else. This is true. But certainly, they... I mean, they... I, I don't know. I, I just I don't know. I feel like the British... <laughs> Never mind, I don't want to get into it. Please carry on.
0: I don't know either. Anyway, so yeah, (laughs) not great. Not great, the stuff they're doing, but don't worry, it will get much, much worse. Oh. So, apparently at some point they did realize that they couldn't just send the entire male population into far-off island prison camps, so Lord Roberts, the British commander, uh, decided to, uh, you know, open up that big British heart of his and offered an amnesty to any Boers, except for leaders, no amnesty for them, who would swear an oath of neutrality not to oppose the British. And, you know, many Boers understandably took him up on this deal and returned mm. to their homes, since, you know. Yeah. Yeah. The situation at all. Yep. But as the British surrounded, defeated, and or captured the larger Boer forces, the most committed fighters continued to elude them, uh, ditching the artillery and the accoutrement of an organized army and fading into the familiar landscape of the region that was their home to continue their struggle. Mm. Like you do. And we (laughs) we mentioned last time that as the capitals fell and the governments went into flight, many of the Boer leaders had decided that they would continue to resist the British in guerrilla warfare once the inevitable military defeat of their nations occurred. And that's exactly what many of them did. Hmm. So Denae's, of course, was in it for the long haul. Under uh, General Botha, the core of the Boer fighters escaped the British encirclement, along with the mobile government of the Transvaal Republic. Uh, It's literally in wagons. Like, they're literally bringing the government around in a wagon. Um, I wish wish our government could fit in a wagon, but that's neither (laughs) here nor there. So, and the... the, (laughs) A paddy wagon! Sorry, I'm done. (laughs) Nice, nice. But yeah, so, and the government at this point is mostly controlled by the Secretary of State, Francis Raits, Denise's father, after the aging president, Paul Kruger, had departed for Europe to try to drum up some support for the Boer cause. Uh, He doesn't really get anywhere and dies soon after because he's old. That's sad. It is, yeah. So yeah, the government literally moved around in wagons, avoiding the British, um... I'm like, yep, yep, gotta move the government again. And Danae's father, the de facto government leader, uh, shouldered his rifle like a common soldier whenever they had to fend off British patrols, which is pretty impressive. It's like, yep, gotta defend my little government wagon here.
1: Uh, it's, it's hard to look at this and not feel like, ugh, because, you know, they're like literally moving around in wagons. I mean, it, it, it feels hopeless yeah it it kind of does doesn't it? yeah
0: yep, so General Botha organized the resistance to British occupation, keeping in mind the mistakes uh that had led to their current situation, which was sort of trying to do war the same way the British did and sort of fight them on their own terms. it just wasn't wasn't working out, so rather than remaining clumped together in like a big mass where a lucky British attack could end it for good. The Boer commandos dispersed with different groups returning to their own home regions, which meant that they could rely on local support and personal knowledge of the terrain and of the towns and the people there, which would enable them to sort of keep a low profile, live off the land, you know, stay off the grid kind of thing. Yeah. And that's the dream, isn't it? But um, (laughs) anyway, and their orders were pretty much to simply act against the British wherever and whenever possible and then disappear before the British could respond in force, because the British may control, you know, the capitals, but ultimately the British only control where the British army is. So they avoided pitched battles and focused on raiding British railroad shipping and supply trains, disrupting communication and uh, transport lines, and basically doing whatever they could to undermine British control while maintaining a loose cohesion with the larger network of the leaders like General Botha and General Smuts in the Transvaal and General Deloray in the Orange Free State. So it's sort of a very decentralized kind of thing.
1: Yeah, it's, it, it feels, um, rickety, you know, um, like moving the government around in a wagon while the British are setting up, you know, Permanent residents in all the major cities. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I could see something like this maybe working, but I, I'll just shut up and let you continue to tell the story because I want to <laughs> see how this goes.
0: So, yeah, at first, uh, Dinesh and his brothers stayed with uh, with their father in the mobile government wagon as part of its protection force while it roamed around the northern Transvaal out of the British Reach. But eventually they decided they wanted to return to the south and join up with one of the small military units carrying on the war. Uh, mm. Denez's brother, Hjalmar, uh decided he was going to go east to join a unit there in the east Transvaal, but he was captured and sent to a prison camp in India. Okay. <laughs> which is sad. And yeah. uh, soon after, another brother, uh, Joubert, who's younger, I think? I think younger. Uh, was sent to a prison camp in Bermuda, which is really, really
1: far from South Africa. And, yeah, yeah mm, British Empire. Why? Why you gotta be like this, man? Yep,
0: yep. So, even though he considered that, from his perspective, the war was won, you know, Yay, we're the good guys we won, Lord Roberts knew that there would continue to be resistance to British occupation unless a you know a more permanent solution was found, so he oh. began the process for which the Boer War is most notorious the concentration camps oh God, really yep um, I can't believe I've never heard of this Wait, you've actually never heard of this I've never heard of this oh oh yeah, no this is uh this is sort of the yeah, the most One of the most notorious sort of thing about the Boer Wars, the British concentration camps. What year is this? 1902. Oh, okay. So, uh, you know, they
1: were inventing them. Is that what you're telling me?
0: In a sense, yes. Um, There were some isolated things that were kind of like them, but this was really the first we're going to round up an entire, you know, ethnic group and put them into camps type of thing. But we don't get there quite yet. We don't get there quite yet. Okay. So it's hard to say how much of what happened ultimately was really Lord Robert's plan. Because in the beginning, in the first phase of the war, during the sort of normal war phase, um, it started with refugee camps that housed people who had been forced to flee by the war, you know, due to their farms or towns being destroyed or having a battle fought in their yards or what have you. But as the war devolved into the guerrilla resistance campaign, the camps became less of a place you could flee to after your farm got destroyed in a battle, and more of a place they locked you up after going around and burning all the farms. No battle necessary. Oh, I hate these tactics. They're disgusting. Yeah, no, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. And as I said, it's hard to pin down exactly when this shift took place. It certainly started under lord roberts but it really kicked off under lord kitchener who succeeded him because since he considered that he had you know done the job beaten the enemies and you know done his duty to king and country or whatever lord Mm -hmm. roberts fucked off back to england pretty soon after the conventional war petered out and left his pernicious minion lord kitchener in charge Ugh. You may uh, you may recognize Lord Kitchener as the face of the iconic World War One British recruiting poster, which I've given you here.
1: Ah, uh, yes. Was it you? <laughs> Were you texting me about this dude a while back? And I just Pro- happened to be in happened yes. to be in an antique store, and there was one of these, uh, you know, Britons want you, or Kitchener wants you, to join your country's army. Army, God save the king. Like the dude pointing at you with a big mustache. Yep,
0: yep. No, that was me. I was literally texting you angry about Lord Kitchener, and you sent me
1: a picture back. It was kind of terrifying. Yeah, that was weird. (laughs) Like literally, I was getting texts from you about this guy, and then I look up from my phone laughing, and there he is on the wall. (laughs) You can't escape, Aaron. (laughs) Oh god, it's like that it's like those memes with the like they just like put a gun or a, a finger pointing at you. Or something like that, and like a random creature or person or something. You ever see those? Yeah, I think I know what you mean. That's exactly what this looks like. It's really weird and it's very, as as far as propaganda goes, it's pretty effective. Um, there's something
0: unsettling about it though. Like I'm, I can't quite put my finger on something about his eyes, maybe.
1: Yeah, his eyes definitely. His his intense expression, but also there's like. Three major themes in the image itself. Uh, first, you've got the hat, which, you know, it's, it's basically a crown. If you want to put it that way. And then you've got that massive stash, which back in the day, you know, whiskers were like a, th- a status symbol. And then you have this disembodied arm pointing directly at you in like a tight grip. Um, it's like, you know, this floating head and this disconnected arm, it, it's just like, it really reaches right into your soul and says, and makes you ask yourself, why don't I join up? My country needs me. <sighs> yeah.
0: Also, the fact that wants you is in quotation marks also disturbs me for some reason. Yeah.
1: It's... Yeah. <laughs> I hate propaganda. <laughs> yep, yep. But it is what it is. <sighs> so anyway,
0: when uh, Kitchener took over in late 1900. He realized that Lord Roberts hadn't taken the situation seriously enough, and that drastic action was going to be needed to counter the Boer guerrilla campaign, which was picking up steam. But before we get to that, let's check in with Danae's again. So he's... He's off conducting guerrilla operations with uh, General Jan de Smuts, who had begun expanding his operations into the Cape Colony itself. And so that's that original settled part of South Africa, the place from which the Boers had departed over the centuries to found the Boer Republics because they wanted to get away from first the Dutch East India Company and then the British. Right. And so, yeah, he he starts expanding his campaign of... uh, you know, raiding and -and hit-and-run attacks on British operations into the Cape Colony, not just in the Boer Republics. Taking back ground. All right. Oh, yeah. So, since the Cape Colony, the British Cape Colony, was still majority Dutch, the Boers hoped that successful actions against the British there would engender uprisings among the Cape Dutch. Like, if they see these crazy backwoods Dutch people coming in, like, successfully ambushing British convoys and stuff, maybe they'll be inspired to do something. Which, that makes, that makes a certain amount of sense to me.
1: And also, there is the other side of this, where the British see this happening, and then they probably will start picking on the Cape Dutch because they're getting attacked by these other Boers. Yeah, that could also be part of it, definitely. Yeah.
0: So, unfortunately, this never really materializes. Um, like, the Cape Dutch don't exactly like the British, but you don't really get much in terms of them joining the Boers. Sad, right. I know. Yeah. But, nevertheless, the Boers did actually have a lot of success in their hit-and-run attacks on British military units and installations. Despite enduring extreme hardships and constant pursuit, uh, sometimes they would have to travel for 40 hours at a time without resting. Because they're, you know They're in these tiny little like, guerrilla units perpetually being chased by larger British forces and having to elude them.
1: Ugh, that sounds like hell.
0: So it's a pretty rough life. Yeah. It's a pretty rough life. In September, um, Danaes participated in the Battle of Elon's River, where the Boer commandos actually wiped out a cavalry squadron, uh the seventeenth Lancers, I believe it was, which was considered to be one of the finest in the British Army. Uh so like they you know, they, they can hit hard. They can do some stuff. That's a uh, big win. Yeah, and Danays was in the vanguard. For this and fought the action from start to finish of this battle. And surveying the aftermath, he actually wrote down his thoughts. Uh, Here, do you want to read these?
1: Of course I do, but you have to pick the voice. I don't know. Um, Do you have a Denae's voice? My Denae's voice thus far has just been me trying to sound badass when I'm really like the least badass person. Um, Okay, I'll try not to sound badass this time. So this is following this destruction of the finest cavalry squadron in the British Army. <clears throat> I also saw the dead gunners and other men whom I had shot, and I looked on them with mixed feelings. For although I have never hated the English, a fight is a fight. And while I was sorry for the men, I was proud of my share in the day's work. Eww. <laughs> what? What? What makes you say that? <laughs> he never hated the English, but you know they had to go anyway.
0: You know, a, f- um, a fight's a fight, man. Like, fight's a fight. I get it. Yeah, no, makes makes sense to me. That's all I'm saying. I mean, sure.
1: <laughs> so, anyway, uh, I'm a little biased because because I I must uh, uh, never mind. I'm just not going to even make that joke. Please carry on. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> So one of the captured officers, um,
0: Lord Vivian, uh, told Danae's while he's wandering around that it would be worth his while to hit up his tent before they left. So Danae's did. And he was very, very glad that he did. And because, uh, yeah, it was nice. Basically, the guy's telling him, you know, I've got some nice stuff. You should you, you should just take it since, you know, they're being captured. He's not going to get to take his stuff with him. So he's like, there's some nice stuff in my tent. Why don't, Why don't you grab it? And so uh, this and this is what uh, Danaes writes about it.
1: That's hilarious. All right, I'll read it. Okay. <clears throat> Having started with a grain bag for my chief garment, a foundered horse, an old rifle, and two cartridges, I now appeared in a handsome cavalry tunic, riding breeches, etc, with a sporting, sporting Lee Metford rifle, full bandoliers, and a superb mount. Hey, upgrade.
0: Definitely. I also like the fact that he literally only had two bullets left at the end of the battle. Uh, right? <laughs> I noticed that. I was like, two
1: cartridges?
0: <laughs> yeah, so like that's just going to show you how you know these, these guys are operating on a razor-thin margin in terms of supplies. Yeah, really. Really. Hmm. I also like the use of the adjective sporting. Yes. Yeah, very sporting. Yeah. I like cavalry tunic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not entirely sure what a cavalry tunic is, but I mean, I'd wear one, especially a handsome cavalry tunic. Of course. Yep. <laughs> so despite the uh, the terrible conditions and the extreme hardship, Denae's and the Boers continued their war with a surprising amount of success, you know, stuff like that, which takes us back to Lord Kitchener.
1: Mm. Sorry, I just get,
0: get the goosebumps every time I mention that benighted name. <laughs> we need to just cover him on the show.
1: Yeah, like we a probably a ten part
0: series. <laughs> oh God, don't even tempt me. So Ugh. realizing that he only actually controlled the parts of the population that his army was stationed with, he decided it was time to dust off those refugee camps and finish this whole Boer nonsense. Hmm. Yeah, a little, a little bit <laughs> ominous there. Yeah. <laughs> so, what he did was he implemented a total scorched earth policy just sweeping the countryside and destroying pretty much everything in his path, burning the fields and the houses, slaughtering the livestock, and forcing the population into those convenient refugee camps.
1: Ah, yes, destroy people's livelihood and then offer them a way out, and they either die of starvation or eat your goddamn disgusting British
0: food. I I don't really think it was an offer at this point. Uh, No, no, of course not. (laughs) Yeah, pretty sure it was uh, coercion. But yeah, so... He figured, you know, the Boers couldn't support themselves in the countryside if there was no countryside, (laughs) and the Boers couldn't get help from their local communities if there were no local communities. That's just like Ceausescu!
1: Ooh! Mm. Uh, Shout out to the man with the weird lips. And the strange, funny hat who couldn't silence the crowd. Ooh. Anyway,
0: so here is how uh, a modern historian—well, relatively uh, modern—Thomas Pakenham describes Kitchener's plan. So why don't you read this in an evil voice?
1: I'll read it in my my lazy, armchair-colonizing, imperialist voice. Um, Yeah. The plan was to flush out guerrillas in a series of systematic drives, I should say, organized like a sporting shoot with success defined in a weekly bag of killed, captured, and wounded, and to sweep the country bare of everything that could give sustenance to the guerrillas including women and children. It was the clearance of civilians, uprooting a whole nation that would come to dominate the last phase of the war. I should have read that in an evil voice. That got worse with every word. I,
0: no, I told you. I told you yeah. It was bad.
1: Yeah, holy shit.
0: Yeah, so Kitchener uh, Kitchener was pretty serious about this. Bitchener. Yep, Bitchener. So in addition to doing this, uh, at the same time, he also began a massive program of fortification – building guardhouses at bridges, crossroads, train tracks, depots, and basically anywhere else the Boers might launch raids against. So slowly but surely, Kitchener's new tactics, which sort of restricted the Boers' ability to do their surprise attacks, but probably more than the tactics, his brutality wore down the Boers' will to fight, and more and more units disbanded. And, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to blame them for despairing when uh, the home and family they were fighting for was, you know, burned and forced into camps, respectively. Yeah. And it gets even worse. The British <sighs> also withheld rations sometimes, not always, but sometimes, from the families of men who were still actively fighting. Oh. So it's like, oh. everyone's kind of starving, but if you're, you know, if you're still fighting, then your family's going to be really starving. Yeah. Ah uh, yes, starving Ugh. women and children to get their uh you know the men to stop fighting. Golden diamonds
1: all for money.
0: Oh. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh it's pretty bad to be honest. Yeah. Ultimately, Uh, Forty-five camps were built to imprison Boer civilians, almost all of whom were women and children, and another 64 camps were built to house the black African inhabitants of the area, because they just wanted—they wanted the country cleared out, like literally a wasteland. Wow. Uh. Over a hundred and fifteen thousand— uh, Boers were interned. I couldn't find the numbers of how many black Africans they interned, but I presume it's roughly proportional. But yeah, over 115,000 were interned. Uh, the British truly depopulated the region and just left it an empty wasteland. The camps were packed with far more people than they were designed to hold. And since food and medical care were criminally mismanaged or just neglected, disease and starvation were rampant. by the uh, by the end over 27,000 boers and 20,000 black africans had died in these camps and of the boers the majority something like 80% of that 27,000 were children
1: why do you hurt me so fuck the it's, british i i know
0: i know that's kind <sighs> of the, that's kind of the running theme of world history good god so for nearly 2 years after the uh The conventional war ended. The Boers fought on, but the writing was on the wall at this point, and as surrender became inevitable, Danaes was chosen to accompany a delegation from his commando to a peace conference which was being held between Kitchener and the various Boer leaders. And he actually has a very interesting note about this um, experience, and this is what he writes...
1: Nothing could have proved more clearly how nearly the Boer cause was spent than these starving, ragged men clad in skins or sacking, their bodies covered in sores from lack of salt or food, and their appearance was a great shock to us who came from the better-conditioned forces in the Cape.
0: Yeah, so, you know, we already talked about how tough things were, you know, riding 40 hours at a time and all that, and they're, like, in the best shape out of any of the Boers. (sighs) Yep. Yep. So, ultimately, the peace was concluded with Kitchener, and the war was over. Hmm. The British had, in total, committed over 450,000 troops to fight in this war, which is almost twice the total Boer population, which was around 220,000. Yeah, think, just think about that. It's almost twice the total population, you know, including everyone is how many soldiers they deployed. That's insane. Yeah. That's insane. In the treaty, gotta gotta have my in-fairness bit here, it seems like the British tried to make some small return for the horrors they'd enacted upon the Boers, since the the terms of the peace were relatively generous as these things go. Mm -hmm. Um, So although they were to be incorporated into the British Empire uh, after they had, um, you know sworn an oath to not fight them and t- had to turn in their weapons. It was understood that self-governance would be attainable in the future and a general amnesty for those who had fought was given. And in addition, the British government pledged a decently large sum of money for the rebuilding of some of the farms and villages they had burned.
1: Hmm. <sighs> well, yeah. at least, give, I mean, you gotta give credit where credit's due. They could have just said, no, you're gonna stay in the camps forever.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I guess they probably couldn't pay taxes in the camps.
1: Oh, that's true. They can't pay taxes there.
0: Gotta got get that sweet, sweet tax revenue.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. So, since the delegates had voted for the peace, uh, Denise's father, as the Secretary of State, was obliged to officially sign the document, the agreement. But he said he would only sign it as the Secretary of State, not as the Boer Francis writes Or Reitz. He said, you know, I will officially sign this from my office, but I personally will not sign it. So he was uh, given two weeks to leave the country and said, OK, well, you've got to leave. Hmm. And uh, it was I guess it was nice and nice of them that they gave him two weeks.
1: <laughs> they <laughs> could have just
0: said, you're leaving now.
1: Yeah, they could have just escorted him to a ship and sent him to Bermuda.
0: Yeah. So I guess, you know. I guess it's a small win but yeah so um Danae's and his youngest brother uh followed their father's example and chose exile so the other two brothers are already in prison camps in india and bermuda So it was just dene's and the youngest brother and right. they decide they're gonna they're gonna do the same thing as their father and they're gonna leave because they're not gonna sign it so the, in that two weeks uh they, you know, went back to their home, but when they, when they returned to their home after years of war in order to prepare to depart their country, they found that it was now occupied by a British general, and guards refused to let them in. All their, pos- Yeah, they literally just, uh, some British general moved into their house and was like, yeah, this is very, very fine. Yeah. And yeah, all their possessions had been confiscated, and they had to rely on the charity of a friend to house them until their departure.
1: Good God. Oh, yep. This just hurts. I know. Ugh. I know. Oh, look so, at this house over here. I guess I'll just. Oh, it's already occupied. Perfect. Now I don't have to move in my own furniture. Aha, capital.
0: Uh, love when you can get the furnished
1: apartment. Yeah. <laughs> and no rent fee. Hey. <laughs> Classic. Sounds nice, doesn't it? Yep. Life so, on easy mode. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, um. When it comes time to leave, um, Denise's father actually goes to join his wife in the Netherlands. Um, She had previously left, I think, when when the war started, he told her she should leave. Um, And so she's in the Netherlands, and he goes to join his wife in the Netherlands. And eventually, he actually goes to America for a while. And, yeah, which I I hope he liked it. But... um, (laughs) He does that, and Denaes and his brother go to Madagascar, I guess, because it's fairly close by.
1: Yeah, I guess so. Maybe go visit every now and then. Yep.
0: So before they parted, uh, his father wrote a note which he handed to Denaes, and this is what it says. So you can go ahead and take that from here. Sure.
1: South Africa, whatever foreign shores my feet must tread, my hopes for thee are not yet dead. Thy freedom's sun may for a while be set, but not forever. God does not forget. Holy shit!
0: It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. Do you wow. have any thought, Do you have any thoughts
1: on that? Um, I think that's true. I, I don't. I mean, you don't have to frame it in the whole God thing, because I know that's not very popular. But you can frame it like the whole Bill thing which is a theme we've had on our show for, you know, it's a tale as old as time, as long as that, you know. We don't do the Doppler effect very much anymore out of respect to James, but the bill always comes. And uh, that's just, in one form or another, that is just how it seems how life and history itself works. So, you know, you get what you buy or pay for, you know.
0: Yep, yep. So, Danae's, um ends his memoir of the war with this description. You should probably read
1: this in sort of a sad, pathetic voice. Oh, okay. (laughs) At present, we are eking out a living, conveying goods by ox transport between Mahatsara on the East Coast and the Antananarive. I don't know how that's pronounced. Hard work in dank, fever-stricken forests and across mountains sodden with eternal rain, and in my spare time, I have written this book.
0: What a bummer! <laughs> yeah, so that's that's how that's how his uh his memoir of the war ends. Wow. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not exactly a, a doesn't really end on a high note, does it?
1: Yeah, that's not fun, right there.
0: <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. But Madagascar wasn't the end for Danae's, But i got to be honest with you, I kind of wish it was, as oh, as you'll see. Like I kind of wish the story did end here. Yeah, but it doesn't. So, as the political situation stabilized, many former Boer leaders got involved in the governance of the British colonial governments which had replaced the republics. So those two Boer republics were just, they're sort of, the borders were changed a little bit around, but mostly they were just kept now as these two British colonies with roughly the same, you know, same capital and everything. And as things stabilize, a lot of the Boer leaders get involved in, you know, the governance of these and, you know, run for office or whatever the fuck you do in a British colony.
1: Sure, you live there, okay.
0: What do they say, stand for office or some stupid shit like that? I
1: I have no idea anymore. They have a Lord Mayor and he wears a stupid hat. I, Sorry. It's kind of of a cool hat.
0: Okay, it's a good hat.
1: I think that. he still has the gall to be called—I don't know, I'm just bitching at this point. I'll quit. Sorry. That,
0: that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> anyway, so um uh, both uh, Smuts and many other leaders had decided that participation in the British system and cooperation with British goals was the way of the future, and—and mm. and I just don't get it—became, um, became, like, dedicated servants of the British crown— despite, it must be said, significant opposition for many of the Boers. Many of, you know, the men they led were not super happy to see, you know, the, the generals they had followed through years of hellish war against the people who had put their families into concentration camps suddenly just, like, you know, taking these government jobs in the British administration.
1: It's it's almost as if they sold out. It is a little bit like that, isn't it? Yeah, see, here's, here's my thing is... um. This is just a a thing that I I here, here hmm, how do I put this? Because personally, I've experienced selling out. Um, I've done it only a couple times. <laughs> I'm Are you a British no, agent? I'm a British. I'm literally British. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but the uh, the uh, so I know the feeling of immense pressure to crack and to just be like, all right, like I don't want to be hated all my life. I don't want to be, you know. I don't want to be a resistance anymore. I just want to go with it because I'm tired. And also, you know, and then, you know, you could just sort of give up and say, all right, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And then on top of that, you probably have financial and, um, you know, other uh, valuable, you know, um, opportunities attached to just cracking and giving in and just saying, all right, fine, you win. I get it. Been there. Sucks but it doesn't excuse it.
0: So, um, in particular, uh, the one who's probably the really gets the most into it is General Jan de Smuts. And he was... uh, he had actually a pretty close relationship with Dene's. Dene's was under his command for a long time. And so he had attempted several times to convince Dene's to return to South Africa and enter politics with him. But Dene's didn't want to, and he refused until... In 1906, so after, like, three years in Madagascar, General Smuts' wife wrote a letter to Denaise saying that if South Africa under Union Jack was good enough for her husband, General De Smuts, it should be good enough for him. Hmm. And since he was kind of a fanboy of De Smuts, he relented and came back from Madagascar. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's not. No, no you got to stick to your guns, man. Uh, I don't I don't know if
1: I like where this is going, but hey.
0: Yeah. So, the years in Madagascar, um, as you could probably tell based on that uh, that passage we read above, um had taken a great toll on his health. Uh, he'd got malaria really badly and it had weakened him so much that after he returns to uh to South Africa, like his first time going outside, he literally collapses unconscious. Good god. Okay. And so yeah, he spends 3 years uh living in general Dismetza's house uh being, you know, nursed back to health until he's able to like you know do things again because he's like I, I don't know, I don't know how he was still doing the whole like ox transport job in Madagascar because when it takes you 3 years to get better, you had to have been in pretty bad <laughs> shape. He was the ox. I mean No, I don't know. Yeah, so it's uh, he was in bad shape, but he spends three years in General Smuts's house, getting uh, nursed back to health, and probably getting uh, more and more. Um, well, I guess the word might be propagandized into you know General Smuts's sort
1: of political program. Maybe well, I don't know. That's just my uh, opinion. Uh, well, I think you're you're probably right about that, but also the simple creature comfort of now having a nice house, being nursed back to health by nice people who were under a flag you didn't like. That, you know, that has potential to... to uh, That doesn't even have potential. That will change how you feel about something like the Union Jack. Um, it's, uh... I mean, that, it's just true. I get it. I get it.
0: Yeah. So, after three years, when he's finally all hale and hearty again, he returned to his studies, um, which the war had interrupted. Because, remember, he's 17 when it starts, and he, uh... You know, jumps on the train, and so he's not really going to school during that time. Right, right. So he goes back to school, and he then pr- and starts to pursue legal studies, and within a few years, he begins a career as a lawyer.
1: Ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm, I'm not going to make fun of that too much.
0: No, you can make fun of it. It's fine. I
1: want to hear it. <laughs> I just wish he hadn't gone all the way ba- the other way, <laughs> you know? To literally become a lawyer. I mean, well, at least it wasn't a banker. That's true. <laughs> yeah.
0: So in a uh, within Smuts's circle, uh, Denna, you know, as we said, was getting he got sort of brought over into Smuts's way of seeing things. and Denna begins to view English Dutch harmony as the only way forward for South Africa. and he was convinced that that could only be achieved under British imperial rule, really. And so he ends up being just an enthusiastic supporter of the formation of the Union of South Africa, which was created in 1910 by uniting the British Cape Colony with the former Boer Republics into a new Commonwealth nation. So, you know, like Australia, or New Zealand, one of those semi-independent countries that's still part of the British Empire.
1: Oh, okay, well.
0: You know, like the new Canada.
1: We'll see how that works out for him.
0: <laughs> yep. So when World War I begins in 1914, so four years after this new government starts, uh, General De Smuts, who's the head of the government, pledges to the British Empire to wage war against the German-held Southwest Africa, which they border, much to the disgust of many of the Boers, because they're not exactly keen on going to war for the British. Yeah. Especially because if you remember... The Germans were very supportive of them. They got a right. lot of their weapons from the Germans, and the Germans really encouraged the uh, the Boer republics when they were being founded.
1: Ugh, so that's what happens when you get into a a corporate entity like the British Empire. You just you're at their beck and call, and if they say we don't like those people over there, you have to go.
0: Yeah. So Ugh. as you can imagine, a lot of Boers were kind of upset about this, and several um of the most renowned military leaders from the war condemned this. Uh, like general um, Byers was an important one, and uh, General De La Rey, who we've mentioned before, were just infuriated by this. Um, general Byers um, immediately resigned from the military. He was a general in the, uh, in the South African military, and he immediately resigned,
1: and this is the resignation note he wrote.
0: <clears throat> so a strong, forceful
1: voice. It is sad that the war is being waged against the barbarism of the Germans. We have forgiven, but not forgotten, all the barbarities committed in our own country during the South African War. Yeah,
0: so um, it's you know people are pretty legitimately pointing out. Um, does anyone remember our history with the British? Yeah. Why are we now you know being
1: their lackeys to fight against the Germans? Yep, this is reactive to the propaganda that was going around back then against the Germans. I mean, like the the picture, the images that you'll see that the British that the British were distributing everywhere is just like a, a gorilla in a German helmet, like yeah, like yep. crushing somebody or or like ripping a woman's clothes off. Like that's how they were portrayed in this mass media that was the British Empire, uh, Empire's propaganda wing, going into World War One. And of course, it was done the other way around too. But like these were these divisions that were created in the name of these military conquests through media campaigns and, you know, not merely propaganda, but like meme culture. Um, like these divisions run deep today and they ran deep and they were so, these campaigns were so effective that they, they literally turned people into, they, they turned entire countries, empires, what have you, um, into sort of elitist jingoistic, um, f- like false—I don't know how else to put it—but it's like they, they, they went from being like, "Oh, like we just sometimes have wars with the Germans," to being like, "Oh, the Germans are disgusting." It's like, "Oh, sometimes we have wars with the with Fr- the French." Oh no, the French are disgusting. Like, and the British did it to. It seems like well, it, it is everybody that they were up against because they controlled everything. <laughs> they had they had their, their greasy little fingers all over the entire world and like whenever somebody stepped out of line instant, you know, propaganda campaign against them, instant like meme culture just sort of rises out of the, you know, out of the ether and is adopted by people you know, whoever is loyal to the British Empire, just instant adoption of this thing and it's one of my least fucking favorite things in the world because I studied it and I I learned how it works, and it's so nefarious; it just makes you want to shoot something. I don't know. I, I don't know. No, I knew you would have good stuff to say about that. Yeah. Well, propaganda is—it's—it's it's probably the most—it's it, the most effective weapon of the modern era. And here's the funny thing about about it is like we always go, "Ah, it's the media." No, it's you most of the time, it's you. The media gives you the seeds, you plant it in your own brain, and you let it grow, and you and you get upset at other people for being different. It's like, oh, you know, like, just stop it. <laughs> you know, meme culture doesn't exist in the media. Meme culture exists in you. And it's this whole thing throughout this entire thing. It's just been one propaganda campaign after another. And it's it's not, it's not even the ones you're thinking of. It's the little ones that go along with it. And most people don't just can't seem to catch up and just be like, it's not CNN, it's Fox. It's not Fox, it's CNN. It's like, they're all on the same side, and probably owned by China at this point. So, you know, get the fuck over yourself and stop watching it. Sorry, I'm done. I'm well, done. Thank you. Thank you. You're, you're thank welcome. You. You're, you're welcome.
0: <laughs> I-, I could tell you were holding it in. <laughs> anyway, uh, so moving uh, on. <laughs> the uh, the greatly esteemed general de La Rey was equally opposed to this uh, arrangement and a meeting was arranged between many ranking army officers who planned to simultaneously resign their commissions in protest of this decision on his way to that meeting general de lorey was accidentally assassinated by government police at a roadblock after they allegedly mistook him for a notorious criminal gang they were hunting.
1: Of course. Of course it was an accident. Of course it was, of an, course accident. It was just, an accident, just, yep. just like Patton was an accident. Uh uh-huh. hmm yep. Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, um, this, was, this was the last straw for many Boers, and a lot of military units on the border with the German territory refused to invade it for Britain and mutinied, attempting to reinstitute their lost republics. <sighs> However, martial law was quickly declared by the government, and Smuts, assisted by Denaz, led the government forces to crush
1: the rebellion of their countrymen. For what? Britain. Wait. Denaz was involved in putting down. Yeah,
0: Denaz these... is like Smuts' right-hand man.
1: What? Ah. Oh. Yep. I have no words.
0: And then, uh, after this, uh, Denaes participated in the invasion of German Southwest Africa, and he led South African troops in Europe on the Western Front under the British flag. <clears throat> okay. Yep. Yeah. After the war, he uh, entered politics more directly, and he became a leading figure in Smuts's moderate pro-British political party, and embraced loyalty to the British Empire as his political cornerstone.
1: My dude, what happened?
0: I know. What I know. happened? Yep. Yeah. Meanwhile, <sighs> he did continue to practice law. So when, uh, when, the, when Smuts's political party was out of favor, he would do more of his law practice. And then when the party came back into power, he would resume political offices. He ends up holding a succession of important positions in South Africa, in the South African Union, including deputy prime minister, and eventually ends up moving to London to become the British high commissioner for South Africa, where he devoted himself to strengthening the relationship between South Africa and the British (sighs) government. And yeah, I'm getting pretty pissed off by this point.
1: Okay, Okay.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, he uh, he kind of sold sold out. But uh, his, his law firm eventually became one of the most prestigious law firms in South Africa, so I guess that's cool. Uh. Um, and so, yeah, he did the politics crap and the British crap and the law firm stuff for several decades, and then he died in 1944. And as you can imagine, I kind of wish I'd stopped reading in, like,
1: 1903. Ugh. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but I do have a happy note to end on. That bastard oh. Kitchener... That bastard Lord Kitchener was blown up by the Germans on June 5th um during 1916 I think uh during World War 1. So for that I would <laughs> like to formally thank Kaiser Wilhelm II. You've done us all a service, <laughs> sir. <laughs> <laughs> Got to
1: take the wins where you can get them, right?
0: <laughs> yep, yeah, had to end on a happy note. Oh yeah. And, and Lord Kitchener getting blown up is about as happy note as I can think of.
1: It's all so tiresome.
0: <laughs> yep. Oh yes. my gosh. Yes it is.
1: That's what happens when you bend the knee, you know, it it you get sucked right up into that. Oh my god, it's it's the corporatocracy of, of empires and, and Western countries, it's just oh is it there's got to be a better way. Because the you know, it's like the media is the perfect well the media and and people who take it seriously. Um they're the perfect weapon to get people just up in arms at just whoever the government wants people to get you know, shat on for a while. Um or if you have say a foreign power controlling your media, like, I don't know, China. That's not even a conspiracy theory, by the way. Look at the board. Um <laughs> they, when you have these this this ultimate weapon, you know, suppressing information and, and like, running hate campaigns and, you know, all these just despicable campaigns uh, against whoever the target is that day, it's hard not to get mad, especially when you know how how much it caused. Like, when you understand, it wasn't just, like, the banks that caused the two world wars. Like, oh, yeah, it was the banks. Yeah, it was that, but it was also the propaganda arm that made people hate each other. It's the oldest trick in the book, and it's uh you know it's why political cartoons are exaggerated you know it's just the same thing, different day, and the claims are getting more and more outrageous with every single passing day and every single story that comes out in this entire worldwide chaos that's being manufactured or whatever. I don't know what you believe about any of it, but basically like. Don't let a good crisis go to waste, and if you can't find a crisis, make one. That's that's the mentality of of the um. I, I don't know whoever the hell is uh, running. on. Yes, I'll those.
0: never I'll never forget when the Boers flew a plane into Big Ben. Yeah, that was just the worst. Ugh. So yeah, as you can see, I um I was pretty pretty disappointed with how this all turned out based on the trajectory of the last three episodes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yep. Ugh. What a way to end that one. My god, like... But, I mean, it's a similar thing to the IRA. A lot of them sold out, too. Not as, I would say, not as hard, but... Good, well, even then. I don't know. It's weird. I'm going to go get yep. some ice cream.
0: Um, well, say say something funny. We need we need your comic relief.
1: I can say some funny things. Um one, you can at least call him Lord Bitchner. <laughs> I do I do like Lord Lord Bitchner as the title. And uh yeah, some funny stuff. Um I don't know, it's hard getting harder to be funny. Funny when you get when you get to a story that ends that way. My god, um uh, I'm gonna take, uh, Benjamin Franklin to Chick-fil-A... now. <laughs> oh, but I, I can't. I can't take him to Chick-fil-A. He's dead.
0: <laughs> oh, you're right. For a second I thought, wait, is it Sunday?
1: Yeah. I don't know, man. I don't know. I wish I could say something funny, but here's what I can promise. It's my turn to do an episode at last. So, I'm going to pick a funny one for next week. And I've got some good ideas. Or, next week. Oh, here's another thing, everybody. I'm going back to work. But it's the night shift. So, if you don't want me to work the night shift, send your money to... I'm just kidding. All right. um, Yeah, no, I'll pick a funny one for next time. Because that got pretty harsh. Gotta say. Yeah. It's time to have some laughs. laughs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Do you have anything you want to say to wrap up? I mean I feel not, like I'm doing a lot of not rapping. really
0: any not really anything funny, as he Yeah, it's like I this episode probably would have been longer if I hadn't gotten so pissed off. I just like it was like we were on a we were on a good trajectory, episode was going well, and then I just kept doing the research and it just got
1: bad and I was like, I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> please, please take me away from this place. Yeah. Ugh. With that sordid note, I think it might be time to head to the surface.
0: Yep, sounds good. And it's not Sunday, so we can get some Chick-fil-A. Uh,
1: thank Thanks God. to our royal patron, Jacob. Exactly. And our... Is, our oh, say that... Describe that to... to I was gonna him. say, this
0: is great. I, I imagine this is what it must have been like for, like, Michelangelo or Da Vinci or one of these Renaissance painters who have, like, a royal patron who just pays you to create your art because, you know, they... They want the, the fruits of your labor to be revealed to the world. That's, that's how I feel like this is. Like, I, I have no problem being a court podcaster.
1: I would love to be a court podcaster. Fuck Patreon. I'm, well, sorry, Lewis, and everybody else who gives the Patreon. <laughs> but uh, it would be awesome to have, like, sponsors, but not like commercial sponsors, just, you know, patrons. That would be cool. That would be cool. Like, like royal page. <laughs> okay, now I'm just, now I'm just dreaming about maybe, perhaps one day I don't have to wage away my life. <laughs> I can just do what I love all the time. But uh, that's that's seeing? the dream, isn't it?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's probably probably time to uh, head to the surface. Yep, off we go. <laughs> If you would have to choose between serving the interests of the British Empire or the CIA,
1: which would you choose? Hmm. Weird vampiric cult that just fucks with people or weird vampiric cult that just fucks with people but probably also has psychic powers and flying saucers? I'd have to pick the CIA. (laughs) What about you? If you had to choose between serving the interests of the British Empire or the CIA, which would you choose? I mean, I was just gonna say what's the difference at this point, but <laughs> you already covered
0: that, so stole my thunder. Oh, sorry. I'm stealing a lot of thunder today.
1: Heron <laughs> Thunder Stealer. Oh my god. Thunder Stealer. Yeah, there was a there was a really cool storm out here um yesterday. It was pretty impressive. I thought I was gonna see my first tornado, which would have been interesting because only last week I said I wanted to see our tornado before I died.
0: <laughs> You've never seen a tornado?
1: I've never seen one.
0: Don't you get tornadoes out in whatever godforsaken part of the world you live in?
1: I've been under one without being able to see it. Um, the, uh, that happened once. There was this huge storm where I was growing up, and you could hear it. You could feel it. Um, and it was, it was reported to be above my town, but I couldn't see it because it was the dead of night. Ooh, dark yeah. tornadoes. Dark NATOs, yeah. Mm. Well, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably British. <laughs> Why didn't you change that a little bit?
0: I did change it. It was, you're probably a British artillery shell. Before. Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> if you hate us, uh,. Consider funding the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com, or if Patreon is not your thing, just as it wasn't Jacob's thing, drop us a little tip or a big tip in Venmo. Um, <laughs> every little bit helps, and our handle is at wtadp. Um, Patreon takes no money out of that, which is great; it goes just directly to us. Um, and the tip thing seems to be working really well because Patreon is really kind of like difficult to set up and kind of bad as a platform. Um, so tips are awesome so anything you want to send to our Venmo at WTADP and of course share the show with your dumb friends our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration you can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com and with all that being said we'll close out and let the real boars play you out we
0: want to know everything about the man we work for the man (laughs) This isn't about the father. No, 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 This is about the son, Artemis Fowl. You've grown strong, son.
1: (laughs) And (laughs) (laughs) smart. And I am her in my Look at the top of his head. (laughs) (laughs) That's (laughs) just one very important thing I have to do. (laughs)
0: Authorities launched a worldwide manhunt for the famous
1: collector. He is suspected to have been behind some of the biggest robberies ever. <laughs> Hello? Your well, family has taken something of great values. <laughs> tell it to me or I will destroy everything you love. Who am I supposed to see the <laughs> Your father is of accomplished perfection for years. He has protected powerful secrets that have kept mankind safe from the dangers of another world. It's time to face your destiny. do oh, look around, this is what they call great. But we are not alone in this.
0: Mulch diggums, just a talented giant dwarf. Oh! And I'm Holly Short, your ally on the other
1: side. Oh! Oh like... No! No! no look, at look at this one! All right, save my father.
0: Save the world. You ready to oh, look like Bobby
1: get... from Lizard Lick. Scared Artemis?
0: I'm first scared to death. <laughs>